you, Mark, and thank you, Grace. We are continuing in our study of the Gospel of John as we go from chapter to chapter, verse to verse, uh, seeing the, the life and teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Sunday school, the adult Sunday school class, we heard this morning that uh, in a survey that was taken, what is your favorite chapter of scripture of, of church people across America? Uh, John 14 was apparently the uh, most favored chapter, and we're going to complete that chapter in our study today. John 14 is part of what's called the Upper Room Discourse, uh, to say that this is our teaching our Lord gave in that upper room as he gathered on the Passover night for the Last Supper with his disciples. And again, that's what makes so much of this so precious to me. These are his parting words. These are his final words before he leaves his disciples and the next day goes to the cross. And so every syllable is, is just weighted with that being on his heart. So let's read the text that's before us today. Uh, chapter 14, verses 25 through 31. And I encourage you to look along in your Bible as, as I read. Our Lord says that, said this, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You've heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father. For my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he is nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. So again, we're in the midst of Jesus giving his disciples these parting words. In verses 25 and 26, he, he's, he's saying again that he is not leaving them, for he's not forsaking them. He turns to, he's, he's focusing on the reality of his departure. The disciples still haven't quite figured out. He said he's going away. They can't come where he's going right now. They're confused and they're uncertain, and so there's a lot of uncertainty in their minds and hearts, but the Lord is trying to uh, prepare them for what's coming. In verse 25, he said, These things I've spoken to you while being present with you. He's been teaching them for three years, and it's, it's, it's culminating this evening as he gathers in the summer room with them. He's been teaching them for three years. For three years, they have walked with him, talked with him, eaten with him. They watched his miracles as he broke the bread and the fish to feed 5,000. They took it from him, and they're the ones that distributed it. They were there after miracle after miracle and saw the amazement, saw the wonder as lepers were cleansed, the paralyzed walk, the, 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 the deaf hearing, the blind seeing that seen all that, that had all kinds of conversations. And that's coming to a close. What a devastating thought that must have been to the disciples as it slowly started sinking in. He's leaving us. They had known nothing but his presence for these three years. What are we going to do without him? How are we going to handle this? And so he gives them guidance. In verse 26 he says, I'm leaving, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and he will bring to your remembrance all things which I said to you. If you don't mind, I'd like to look at this verse in backwards order, starting at the end of it and moving to the front of it. The Lord had said earlier he was not going to abandon them as leave them in, like helpless orphans in verse 18. I'm not going to forsake you. 
And, and he said then, and he says now again, that another comforter would come. Another one, like himself. And that tells us again that the Holy Spirit is as much God as Jesus is. And he's coming, he's a person, he has personality, he is God. And so as Jesus is leaving, the Holy Spirit would come in his, in his place and be with them, to help them, to come alongside them. That word, and some of your Bibles have different words of translation there. Mine here has the word helper. Again, the Greek word here is parakletos. And in, in the Greek, it's, that's broken up into two parts. Kletos means to be called para alongside of. So this comforter, this helper, is someone who comes alongside. The Holy Spirit is someone who is with us. And so he speaks to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He, but he, and he says he'll not only be a, a comforter, a helper, a paraclete, he'll be a revealer and a teacher. So that's going to be important because our Lord's leaving. There's much they need to know. And the first thing he said is, uh, he, will, he will bring to re- your remembrance all things that I said to you. Do you ever think about these gospels that are written? So many years after the fact. Now, not, not compared to some of the documents where we read about someone writing biographies of someone who lived hundreds of years ago. These are their personal experiences. But for example, the, the Gospel of John is written in the late 1880s or 90 AD. About 50 years after the life of Christ. How well do the disciples remember his teaching? I might ask some of you, do you, how well do you remember what you were taught in high school or in college? I have vivid memories. I was thinking of examples of that or my, or an organic chemistry class. It was a large auditorium, a couple hundred students. And down in front, the professor would come in. First thing he'd do is he'd come in, he'd write the outline for the day's lesson. And then he would start write, talking and writing chemical formulas across the chalkboard. This room had... Uh, nine chalkboards. There was a row of three, and so he'd go and write all the way, one board to the next to the next. He'd go back to the first, and it was on a pulley system. He would then lift the chalkboard, it would go up, and he'd start writing on the next and do that along the way. Then he'd come back and do it a third time. It was remarkable. He would be writing and talking straight for the full hour of the class, and somehow, every time he finished, just as the bell was ringing, he'd be finishing the last of the nine chalkboards. I remember that. I don't have a clue what he wrote. That's gone. It is completely gone. Maybe you can think about things like that as well. I do remember an algebra lesson from high school. The, the teacher got on the, the uh, desk stood on one foot and balanced and said, I, I'm doing this so you remember what Mr. Rollins taught you about this algebra principle. I remember him standing on the desk. I says, well, that's the best I can do. So Jesus had been teaching for three years. How well would they remember? Jesus said, don't worry. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he will remind you of everything I taught. Now, this is a promise specific to the apostles. They listened to the teaching of Jesus. He's going to remind them of what they learned. So God the Father and God the Son anticipated the need for help. And so they chose to send the Holy Spirit. And as Jesus will leave the scene, the Holy Spirit will come And he will remind them of all that Jesus taught them. Well, their memories might be dubious, but the Holy Spirit will get it right. Can we trust his memory, his guidance, his reminding? Several times he is called, right here in the Gospel of John, he's called the Spirit of Truth. In John 14, 17, we already saw that the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. In John 15, 16, we will read, when the, Holy, when the helper comes, 
whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth. In John 16, 13, however, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, three times in the upper room discourse, in the, in the evening of teaching to his disciples, three times Jesus will call the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth. He is God himself, the Holy Spirit is. And he's characterized by holiness and truth. So if he is the one who's reminding the disciples, he's going to get it right. That's a promise the Lord was giving. And so you know what that tells us? In our New Testament, we have four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How do we know they're reliable? Because God, the Holy Spirit reminded the the apostles of all that Jesus taught and did. So that tells us the, the Gospels are guaranteed to be accurate in what they teach. They're inerrant. They have no flaws or mistakes because God can't make mistakes. And it's the Holy Spirit who, who would remind the disciples. But like the old commercial says, but wait, there's more. Not only will the Holy Spirit remind them of what Jesus taught, it says also, he will teach you all things. Now we have to take the word all things in context, right? He's speaking about um, that, that the Holy Spirit will be teaching them spiritual truth. So he's, we already told, we're already told he's going to remind them of what Jesus taught. He's going to continue to teach spiritual truth, biblical truth. It reminds me of the phrase uh, Peter uses when he says that God, you know, God guides us to, with, with, by his divine power. He's given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So the Holy Spirit's going to teach us, teach the apostles all the truth that we need. So if the Gospels are the reminding ministry of the Holy Spirit, the epistles are the fruit of the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit to the apostles. And so what that tells us is Jesus is assuring the apostles before one word was written in the New Testament that God the Holy Spirit would guide them. And since he's the spirit of truth, that tells me the New Testament is guaranteed accurate to be without error, without mistake, without flaw, and be exactly what we need. Can I trust the New Testament? Well, can I trust Jesus is basically what we're saying. Yes, of course we can. And he has said that that these apostles would be guided and equipped by the Holy Spirit so that what is recorded in our New Testament, the Gospels, the Epistles, the Book of Revelation, is guided and directed by the, the, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, who was sent by the Father and the Son to do just that ministry and more. And so I should, I should mention when I read this that this is specifically applying to the apostles. He's speaking to them there in that upper room. He's talking about reminding them of what they learned beside, you know, walking alongside Jesus for these three years. So this reminding and teaching ministry is, is God's re- revealing ministry to them. That's for the apostles. It's not for us. The Holy Spirit isn't one who reveals to our mind what Jesus said in, 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 along the road. He, he gives us that by giving us the Gospels. So this revealing of truth is a ministry specific to the apostles. Now, we do know from the scriptures that the Holy Spirit does help us. He helps us by giving us, we call, if one is inspiration or revelation, that's what he gave the apostles, to us he gives illumination the ability to understand the scriptures for example uh, you know paul will say in corinthians that without the holy spirit we cannot discern with, with spiritual truth so so in the ministering to us the holy spirit will will um, make the scriptures clear to us help us to grow in understanding 
and give us the ability to obey them. But the promises here are vital. Can I trust Jesus? Absolutely. Jesus says, I can trust the New Testament because he sent the Holy Spirit to reveal and remind to those apostles so what they record is right. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for sending the Holy Spirit to us that we might have a reliable word. So he's going to teach. He's going to re- the Holy Spirit will remind them. The Holy Spirit will teach them. And then verse 26, he says also, but the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. And I'll just mention again what I've already been saying, but notice how Jesus is saying the, that the, the, the Holy Spirit will be sent by the Father in the name of Jesus. What that tells us is the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit. Now the Bible tells us there's one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those three persons within the triune God each have their own ministry. But here we see that the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. As the Father sent the Son, now the Father and Son send the Holy Spirit. I'll just make a passing comment here. Uh, You might be familiar. As a matter of fact, when I've been kind of giving some summaries of world religions, we talked about the, um, the Eastern Orthodox Church. You can think of Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox and whatever, Eastern Orthodox churches. The, the dividing place between the Eastern Church and the Western Church happened at about, about a thousand years ago. I don't recall it personally, but I've read about it. The dividing point, one of the, 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 two, the, one of the, the major point that really divided them was, what is the relationship of the Son to the Holy Spirit? Specifically, In the Western Church, the creed stated that the Holy Spirit proceeded or was sent by the Father and the Son. The Eastern Church said, no, only the Father. And if you're going to say it's the Father and the Son, then we're going to break off from you. So a thousand years ago, Eastern Church broke from the Western Church over who sent the Son. This verse answers the question. The Father and the Son, excuse me, sent the Holy Spirit. Now, I know you were dying to, uh, to learn that today. I just have to mention it because this verse really makes that issue clear and solves a problem that's been around for a thousand years. But, but we see how important the Holy Spirit's ministry is. His work in the life of the apostles gave us our New Testament. And because he gave it, it's true, it's reliable, it's trustworthy, it's accurate, it is without mistake. Because it's not the work of men writing. It's the Holy Spirit guiding them to write. Then in verse 27, Jesus makes a wonderful promise. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now we sang this morning, John 16, 33. So you'll notice that two chapters from later, Jesus is going to come back and mention again the the, the giving of peace. But here's a provision, a promise. Again, he's getting ready to leave them. And so often I think of of a father, a grandfather, a, a grandmother, a mother, getting ready to leave their children and knowing the time is short. And they want to pass on some gems to them. They want to give them some direction and encouragement. That's what Jesus is doing. He's dying tomorrow. And he knows it's going to be devastating. And so he tells them, you're not going to be alone. The Holy Spirit's going to be there. He'll guide you. He'll teach you. But he also says, your world is going to come undone tomorrow. But I give you peace. Peace, not as the world gives, do I give to you. He says the, the peace he offers is not like the peace the world offers. How does the world give us peace? One way is, the, is they use the, 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 the world gives, you know, gives us, tries to give us peace by denial. Oh, you really don't have a problem. 
It'll be okay. Um, you know, you, 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 there are no you, everything's fine. Don't worry. Problem is, a lot of times we know everything's not fine. Denial doesn't really help. Uh, sometimes the um, the world tries to give us peace by not just to, but you can't den- what you can't deny. They tr- the world tries to help us dull our senses, and so alcohol and drugs and other things will try and dull us to the pain, help us forget the reality. But that doesn't really solve our problems. That's not real peace. And sometimes the world will try to give us peace by. Um, saying, well, we're, it's, you know, it, it'll try and comfort our conscience and saying, it's not your fault, you're a victim. We might see ourselves in the midst of a mess uh, that we have made, and the world will tell us, it's not your fault. Someone else did this to you. And I love that when, whenever I'm like in a medical thing and they say, oh, you've, you've got this or that, and I'll say, you know, where does that come from? Well, most of it's genetic. I'll say, oh, good, I can blame my parents. <laughs> um, that's the, so the world will find you, you're, it's not your fault. You're not responsible. So don't feel guilty. Um, blame someone else. You're a victim. Uh, you're feeling pain. You can't, get, you can't just blame away. Well, take these medications. Take this, take, you know, get yourself numb so you don't really sense the pain. Or just deny it's there. there some will even say, well, there's no such thing as disease. Again, you know, when people teach that, I wonder, when's the last time you walked through a hospital? You know, walk up to someone in a terrible situation in a hospital and say, you know, really, you're not sick. It's all in your mind. Well, that's the best the world can offer for peace. But Jesus can offer true peace. Peace doesn't deny a problem. It, 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 it doesn't deny that we live in a difficult world and it's loaded with pain. Peace, peace gives us is something we can have in the midst of struggle, in the midst of trial. You probably heard about the story. There was a, a challenge put out one time to painters. Please paint peace. And all these painters were trying to figure out the, how do we describe on a painting peace. A common theme for many was maybe a pasture scene. Uh, or a, a bubbling brook in a, a little st- a, a stream in a forest. Do you remember when water used to run on the ground? Uh, well, never mind. But but you know when you think of you know so peaceful settings like this. The the person who won the contest painted a horrific stormy scene. You could see the wind. It was a it was a dark. You could see the lightning flashing. You could see the the water crashing against the rocks. But if you look closely, there in the, in the cleft of one of the rocks was a, was a nest. And sitting on that nest was a mother bird, and underneath, hiding away, warm, dry, and safe, were her little babies. That's peace. Peace is not the absence of problems. Peace is comfort and strength in the problems. Peace is knowing that our shepherd is with us. And so, for example, the 23rd Psalm, again, a favorite passage of Scripture. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. There's nothing more terrifying to a a gentle lamb than to be in in a... in a dark valley with seems like every rock is a moving animal. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. You are with me. And so true peace comes not from taking away our problems, not denying our problems, but in the midst of the storm, the Lord is with us. That's true peace. Our peace comes from that ever-present shepherd, a sovereign God who cares for his children. Isn't it amazing how sometimes just just taking the hand 
of a parent can calm and comfort a troubled child. Well, if dad's here, it's going to be okay. Well, sometimes dad messes up. God never does. And when he's got us by the hand, we can walk through the most difficult of times. So knowing his presence gives us peace. And also, having an eternal perspective. The Apostle Paul went through terrible times, and we've mentioned often. Uh, He was thrown into prison for his preaching. He was beaten for his preaching. He he, he was was on board ships that, that sank at sea. He went through all kinds of persecution and hardship. Here's what he he could write of of a personal testimony in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light momentary affliction is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I imagine some of our most uh, uh, quality athletes get to a place when they're running and and it's all out and the pain starts setting in and they can see up ahead there's the finish line I can hang on for a little bit longer that's the picture of eternal perspective all of this is passing away I may have a devastating disease that may last for decades but in terms of eternity Paul can call that momentary light afflictions. Again, this guy was beaten so badly, they dragged him outside the city and left him for dead. More than once he had beatings. More than once he had afflictions. And he could call them momentary light afflictions because he had an eternal perspective. I'm going to get to the other side of this. And this will seem like a, a, a flash in the pan. It's it's nothing compared to eternity. And with that again, we have peace. So when the world speaks of peace, again, it tries to think of the absence of conflict. When the believer speaks of peace, he thinks of the presence of Christ. The Hebrew word for peace, there are a few words that we know that we're multilinguists because of it. The word amen is actually a Hebrew word, amen. And of course, most people know that the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. Shalom. And you can use that in all kinds of contexts in Israel. Hello, goodbye, and all sorts of other things. What does shalom mean in the Hebrew language? It's not just that there's no conflict. Shalom, it really struck me when I learned that that word shalom can be used, the verb to shalem, you, you pay a bill. You, you pay a debt. How do you do that? You make, you, you fulfill your obligation. So the word for shalom has the idea of fullness. We think of peace as the absence of problems. The biblical sense of peace is the fullness of blessing. And that's in the presence of Christ. So he says, I'm leaving you, but I'm not leaving you alone. The Holy, and I'm leaving you with peace. He goes on in verse 27 when he says, Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And so when our hearts are troubled, we need to remind ourselves of the peace of Christ. He's with me. He's with me. Neither let it be afraid. Interestingly, that word afraid is only used a few times. The verb, the noun, and the adjective all together of that word group less than a half dozen times in all the New Testament. So it's an unusual word. It's not the, the normal word for fear. This is the word that has that kind of the idea of craven cowardice. Don't be, don't be cowards. Don't be cringing in fear. 
Let not your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid. Again, we sang it this morning, didn't we? These things I've spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. So when we come into difficult times, and I imagine we could all, I could say, now everybody take out a paper and start writing what has caused you difficulty. What has troubled you in the last month or year? And we've come up with all kinds of categories, couldn't we? Health issues, financial issues. I have a feeling most of our ink would be in the realm of relationships. I often tell people in just about any, business, any job you may have, your biggest problem is going to be people. It's not getting that muffler on. It's dealing with the muffler supplier and the, and, and the worker. It, it's people issues. Don't put your eyes on the people. He's saying, put your eyes on the presence of the Lord. He's giving us a peace that the world cannot give. In verses 28... In 31 to 31, he continues to give words of, of encouragement regarding his departure. Verse 28, he, he, we read, You have heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. See, the, the disciples are troubled. They're not quite getting it yet. Where are you going? When are you going? But at least they're getting, he's going. And again, they haven't experienced that for three years. What are we going to do with you gone? You're the Savior. What are we going to do if you're not here? But the Lord reminds him, he said, more than that, he's just going away. He's also told them he will come back. I'm going to prepare a place, and I will come for you, he told them, back in chapter 14 again. And, and what else he has said is, he's not only told them that he's going away, he will come back, and he's talked about where he is going, or really to whom he is going. He's going to be with the Father. But you know what? All the disciples can hear is their own sorrow. So as Jesus said, I'm going away, they fixate on that and they miss everything else. Have you ever done that? You're in a conversation and someone is talking a lot, but they, they say something and all of a sudden you don't hear what else they're saying. They might come to you and say, your car has a problem. It's going to cost you $8,000 to fix it. And then they start talking about the problem. Most of us, we stop at the $8,000 and, and we're not hearing all the, you know, the process and the parts and how, we're just $8,000 for this car. Or worse, a doctor comes in and he uh, says, uh, he, he uses words that are troubling, disease, cancer. And sometimes we, we fixate on that, and we don't hear the rest of what he's talking about. We, you know, we vaguely hear him talking about medications and therapies, and, but we get stuck on that word. Well, Jesus told them, I'm going away, and they fixate on that, and they're missing the rest. All they can hear is he's going away. They're ignoring the fact, Jesus said, that, that he's going, not just away, he's going to the Father. And, and notice he says, and, and my Father is greater than I. What does he mean by that? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God. What does he mean by that? Well, for one thing, uh, he's talking about the fact that, that uh, he, he's in his incarnate per being. When he came to earth, he humbled himself. He took upon the, himself the form of a slave, of a servant. And he humbled himself to the point of death. 
course, you might be thinking about Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. Paul describes as being found in the appearance as a man when, God came to, when Jesus came to, uh, to, to earth. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and has given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. That's what the Lord's talking about here is that he's going away, but he's going away to glory. He's going away, most importantly, to be with his Father. And Jesus is saying, if you loved me, he said, I'm going away and coming back. He said, if you loved me, you would rejoice. Because I'm going, I said, I'm going to the Father. And you would rejoice with me and for me. Because I'm leaving this veil of sorrow to exalt in the presence of my Father and his glory. If you loved me, you wouldn't be absorbed in your loss. You would be delighting in my gain. So he's kind of rebuking them here. What the problem is, they're, they're focusing on the self. It seems to me, our Lord's words to his disciples have a lot to say to us. What a reminder that is to us when a loved one who knows the Lord departs in death. Death is not the end. Death is the doorway to eternity. We don't cease to exist when we die. We change location. And so Jesus was saying to his disciples, I'm leaving. Yes, I'm leaving you, but I'm going to my Father. You should be happy for me. When a believer dies, the Bible tells us, in the moment a believer dies, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And so our heart's response to that should be, good for them. Good for them. The sorrows of this world, gone. The suffering that got them to this place, gone. It's often, if you think about when the Bible talks about heaven, have you, you noticed how often it talks about, in, about heaven in terms of what's not there. No more sorrows, no more partings, no more tears. I mentioned before, a chaplain when I was in seminary who had come to seminary to die because of, liver, of, of kidney disease. He thought he would. Actually, he ended up retiring and died in a car accident. But, but he suffered with constant um, dialysis treatments. The whole process that's involved in that, very difficult. But I remember one time he was reading that passage in the book of Revelation that talked about in heaven there'll be no more pain. And he just stopped and he just... He just, I remember him so clearly saying, imagine, no more pain. And you could hear in his voice and see in his face, he was looking forward to what he would leave behind in this world. No more pain. And Jesus is saying, if you you were thinking about me, you would rejoice And so if we love someone who knows the Lord and know that at the moment they die, they're entering into his, the Father's glorious presence, if we love them, we'll rejoice with them and for them. That's what Jesus is saying. If you love me, you'll be glad for me. Now, that doesn't deny the loss to us, but it helps ease the pain to know their incredible gain. They're they're not just gone from us. They're with the Father. I mentioned recently, I think, the little child that was lost her father and 
mother was sitting alone and just crying, and she said, Mommy, why are you crying? She says, because we lost your father. And the child looked up and said, well, wait a minute. Isn't Daddy in heaven? Yes. Well, if we know where he is, how can we say he's lost? And once again, the child teaches the parent. I like the expression, he's going to be with the father. And I was reminded of, of, of something I read years ago from A.W. Tozier. He said, some years ago, one of our national Christian brothers from the land of Thailand gave his testimony in my hearing. He told what it had meant in his life and for his future when the missionaries came with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He described the godly life of one of the early missionaries, and then he said, he's in the Father's house now. He told of one of the missionary women and the love of Christ she had displayed, and then said, she is in the Father's house now. What a vision for a humble Christian who only a generation before had been a pagan, worshiping idols and spirits, but now because of grace and mercy, he talks about the Father's house as though it were just a step away across the street. This is the gospel of Christ, the kind of Christianity I believe in. What joy to discover that God is not mad at us and that we, and that we are his children. What a hope that makes it possible for the Lord's people to lie down quietly when the time comes and whisper, Father, I am coming home. Jesus said, you need to think more clearly, my friends. I'm going to the Father. Where's your joy for me? Another quote from Mr. Spurgeon said this, Many years of a pastoral ministry in, in Victorian England. He said, the very happiest persons I have ever met with have been departing believers, dying Christians. The only people for whom I have felt any envy have been dying members of this very church whose hands I have grasped in their passing away. Almost without exception, I have seen in them holy delight and triumph. And in the exceptions to this exceeding joy, I have seen deep peace exhibit in a calm and deliberate readiness to enter into the presence of their God. Jesus was rebuking his disciples. You've seen your pain, but you're forgetting my gain. I think we can take some lessons home from that. When, we leave, when, when a loved one who knows the Lord has entered into, the, who's gone to the Father's home, our pain is real. Our loss is real. But get our eyes, it will help us if it's, instead of thinking of what we have lost, think of what they've gained. And often I've asked someone or commented, if we could bring them back from glory, would we really want to take them away from that? And what would they say to us if we did? <laughs> what have you done? I, I, I've often said, poor Lazarus must have chewed out his sisters when, when Jesus raised him from the dead and he had to come back and do this dying thing a second time. And I've mentioned that some ancient commentator said he never smiled the rest of his life. I, I could just see him looking over at dinner across the aisles, across the table at his, his sisters. I could have been gone and I was in glory. What did you do to me? And so, not to rebuke grief. Grief is real. But to comfort grief. My loss. Their incredible gain. And through faith in Jesus Christ, that gain soon enough will be mine and we'll share it together. So helping us in our grief, but also remembering and being challenged by the examples that Mr. Spurgeon mentioned, the happiest people he ever met were believers who were dying. How can that be? Because heaven, by faith, was real to them. And may I encourage us, because... Um, I'm not a prophet nor son of the prophet. But death is coming for all of us, except for the rapture of the church. 
every one of us, that time is coming. Will we face it as a believer in Jesus Christ? Happy for, for that we'll be going home? Will our eyes be focused on him? I need to mention, I've been talking about this as something that, that's true of a believer. The Bible says not everyone's going to heaven. Heaven is for those, not those who are good enough to deserve it, but those who have received the gift of forgiveness by trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's why Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty of sin. And he calls on, calls on all, believe. Receive the gift of eternal life. Receive the gift of forgiveness. The, the, the blessings I've been describing are the, are the blessed privilege of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. Recognizing their sin, they've gone to him for forgiveness and chosen to follow him. And when we follow him in this life, we follow him into the next. He says in verse 29, I've told you before it comes that when it comes to pass, you may believe. What he's saying is, I'm about to die. I want you to understand this is not an accident, a mistake, a failure. This is the plan. This is plan A. Plan A is I'm going to the Father. That's why I came, to die for your sin, he's saying. And so when it happens, I want you to see... I predicted this. Interestingly enough, when he dies, we see the road to Emmaus, the disciples saying, we're devastated. We were wrong. Because they forgot. Verse 30 goes on and says, I will, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. He's talking about Satan. And he's saying, What's going to happen to him, the cross, is the work of Satan. It's not Judas. It's not the Pharisees or the Sadducees. It's not Pilate. It's not Caesar in Rome. The one who's, who's taking him to the cross is Satan. But he says, he has nothing in me. There's no sin in Jesus. There's nothing he can accuse or blame. Jesus is going to the cross of his own accord. But notice, he recognizes the one who's behind the evil of this world. And that's a reminder to us. Satan is alive and well and active today as he was in the days of Jesus. Evil is real, and Satan is behind it. Verse 31, he goes on and says, But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. The cross is not a failure. It's not an accident. It's not a mistake. It's the plan. And notice what he says, and I, that's my plan, because I love the Father. I came to do my Father's will. And so he is showing that, he, that the cross was something Jesus willingly took on for us, because this is the way the Father could be satisfied. The, God the Father is a holy God and a God of justice. Sin must be punished. The worst thing we can see, and you see a lot of this, this going on in the news today, crimes have been committed, but where's, where are the consequences? Where's the punishment? Where's the justice? A judge with no punishment is, is not a just judge. But God solves the problem of his justice by sending his son to bear our penalty in our place. And so that Jesus is saying he willingly took on himself the wrath of God that we might be spared because we trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. So as I look at this passage quickly, what have we learned? We can trust the scriptures. They're God-breathed. Are they reliable? The Holy Spirit guided the writing of the Gospels and the Epistles so that every word is God's word. We could know the peace of God. It's his gift to us. We experience that, that peace to the degree that we trust in him. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is Isaiah 26.3. 
I like it in the King James. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. As we are in the midst of, a, of the storm, we keep our eyes on Jesus. We'll know his peace. Let's not make the, dis- the mistake the disciples made looking at our loss instead of the gain of the believer nor even looking at our sense of the loss of our own life when that means entrance into glory. I remember one believer, not knowing quite how soon it would be, but days before her death, saying, I'm not afraid of dying. That's, that's how we get to heaven. Amen, sister. Amen. But again, the glory of heaven is not something we earn or deserve. It's a gift we receive through faith in Jesus Christ. If you have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, where you come and recognize your sin and that you're guilty before God and that Christ paid for that guilt and offers you forgiveness, if you have yet to personally trust in him as Savior, let me urge you, the peace and the promises of this text we've considered today is for those who know Christ as Savior. And he's calling each and every one of us to trust in him that these promises may be ours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who willingly came to bear our guilt, your punishment in our place, Thank you for the promise of heaven. Thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to teach and guide us. Thank you for this, your word. And now, Lord, as we continue, we pray your blessing in Jesus' name.